If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll be reading from verses 21 through 33. This is the last of our series on marriage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is God's word. I just mentioned we're concluding the series today on marriage. And uh, if you're visiting Metro, for the entire year we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. But the last six weeks in particular, we've been looking at marriage. And we've been looking at marriage as friendship, marriage as image-bearing, marriage, uh, oneness in marriage, you know, the co- commitment, the covenant of marriage, gender roles in marriage, and we spent a couple weeks on gender roles. And we're not going to go into all of that again. It's, it's impossible to do that. We could have used a few more weeks on this, actually. But the Apostle Paul says over and over in Ephesians 5, marriage is lived out. It's meant to be lived out the way Jesus relates to his church. And in verse 32, Paul says this. He says, that's the real mystery. He's talking about Christ and his church. So I'm going to give you a big picture, kind of like an overview, a summary to conclude this entire series. And we're going to say four things about marriage. One, why it's remarkable. Two, our resource. Three, the requirements of marriage. And lastly, four, what it represents. Why it's remarkable, our resource, the requirements, and what it represents. Marriage is a signpost. It represents something. So we're going to go into one, the first one, why it's remarkable, why it's so unique. Because this is, this is what makes a biblical marriage so unique, so powerful, so amazing. If you think about this, the traditional view of marriage, this is Jane Austen style, the traditional view of marriage is what? It's to fulfill your agenda, really. Your spouse, the person you marry, you're looking at, helps you to rise to a particular status, a particular social place, a financial place that you desire. So really, back in the day, you married somebody in the right class, in the right status, and love was secondary. And that's what kept everybody in a marriage, if you think about it. And of course, it's also the reason why there were rampant, rampant adultery, rampant affairs, because you often found that romance part of marriage somewhere else. 
But you put up with your spouse no matter what because you're too tied to this marriage. There's too much tied into it. You have your estate. You have your reputation. You have your children and their reputation for that matter. And that's the traditional worldview. That's not a progressive worldview. That's a traditional worldview. You're tied to the community around us. And so you're bound up with your spouse because you have a duty, you have obligations. But then things changed. And they're still changing. And we're much more individualistic as a culture today. Now what we say is, I marry. I marry because of my desires. I marry because of some ideal. I marry because of romance. And so what happens? You got to find the right person. You got to find the right person that fits all of those desires, that ideal. And so what happens is you try somebody and it doesn't work out. Then you try somebody else and then it doesn't work out. And you try somebody else and it doesn't work out. Different partners, lots of risk. In a traditional view, you married with an agenda. You married with an agenda. And so you were committed to one another, but you weren't very loving. Today, you marry for the romance. And, and romance means there's fire, and there's feelings, and there's fulfillment, and lots of passion, lots of desires. And so what goes out the window? Obligation goes out the window because you're putting everything into your feelings. So commitment goes out the window. Covenant goes out the window. We say today, what's the point of staying in a marriage when my feelings are so not genuine? They're not really there anymore. So I want to stay true to how I feel. Now, the thing is, your feelings always change. And you go through stretches in marriage where your feelings completely go against one another. That's marriage. That's why it's covenantal. But we say today, because my feelings aren't there, I want to be true to my feelings. What's the point of being in this relationship any longer? I want to be honest. But think about this. Whether it's because of an agenda, because if it's an agenda, status, it's about your fulfillment. Or whether it's about passion and desires, the feelings, it's still about your fulfillment. So whether you're from East or the West, traditional or postmodern society, whether you're from the Jane Austen style, the, the, the status-oriented, or the Jane Austen style, the feelings and the pleasure-oriented, there really is no room for the other person. If you look at a worldly view of marriage, there's really no room for sacrifice. There's really no room for submission because life, your entire life, the, the non-Christian worldview has very little room to think about the other person in a genuine way because you come first all the time. It's still about your fulfillment. So whether you stay together in a marriage in the old days or now, whether you walk away in the old days or now, in the old or new models, it doesn't matter. They're just selfish ways of approaching something that requires a lifetime of commitment where you make it a priority. A priority. That means other things go second. Other things fall third. That means no matter how important something is, it is the most important thing in your life. It is your life, in a sense. Paul says something different. He offers us something completely different. He doesn't give us something in between. He says, let me give you a whole new way of looking at marriage. And that's what he provides us here. He says, because, remember, chapter 4 of Ephesians, because you are a new self, you've put away the old self, you are a new self. Because you have new power, you have new power, a new self. Verse 22, wives who are completely capable of running a family, wives can submit voluntarily to their husbands. That's not 
a show of weakness. That's a show of power, we said. And husbands, who are usually traditionally very unrelational, right? Centuries of social psychologists have, have said that husbands, they, they have difficulty relationally connecting. Verse 25, they can love their wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died for his bride. That means his life is for his bride to the point, to the degree where he died for his bride. That's the ultimate picture of love, Paul says. And verse 26, look at the commitment there. Christ gave himself up for the bride. That means his desire, his delight was what? Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her with the word. And verse 27, to present her as radiant and holy and blameless. Verse 29, he feeds her, he cares for her as if it is his own body. He cleanses her with the word. There's truth. What about truth? He said, there's the truth. He feeds her and cares for her. There's the love. There's the affirmation. There's the adoration. Wives respond trusting, building up trust in their husbands, submitting to their husbands. Only in the gospel, only in the gospel, Paul says, can you really have real passion and desire on one hand? Will you delight in your spouse? but real commitment and faithfulness. That's why marriage, if you're a Christian, that's why marriage is so unique. It's why it's so powerful. It's remarkable. Now, the second point is our resource. Verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, think about this. Verse 21 really is a carryover from the previous passage. Right? You can't just look at one verse at a time. You have to look at it in context of all the other passages. So the previous passage, verse 15 to 21, 21 sits at the end. It's, it's, not, it's not a whole new section of the letter. It's actually a carryover from the entire section prior. Verse 15 to 21, we learn that Paul reminds us who we are in Christ. In the beginning of chapter 5, he says, You are dear children, as dearly loved children. And Paul continues to remind us, he says, I want you to be careful how you live. I want you to be wise. I want you to make the most of every opportunity. I want you to understand the Lord's will for you and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to be drunk on wine. He says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we said in the past that being in Christ, right, being filled with the Spirit is not different from being in Christ. He's talking about the same thing. Being in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. To be filled. This is the new life in Christ that gives you a new way of dealing with relationships because you have a new heart. He says, when you're a new self, you put off the old, you put on the new. You're dearly loved children. You are now people of light. He says, wake up, O sleeper. Now be wise. I want you to live as dearly loved children. Your relationships are going to be different. The way you look at life is going to be different. Verse 19, you're going to sing and make music in your heart. Now you're going to be unselfish. There's this gratitude in your heart, no matter what you've been through. And verse 21, submit to one another. Actually, if you look at the Greek, he doesn't say submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and then start a whole new section. That's not what he does. Wives, submit to your husbands. He actually says there's a gratitude in your heart. You're going to sing. You're going to make music. There's this gratitude 
And he says, you're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives just like that to the husbands. And then he goes on and he begins this whole discourse on marriage. That's what he says. Keep in mind, marriage is not just a Christian thing. It's intended for anyone. But we've learned that it was created by God, given to us by God. And we spoke at length about this in Genesis chapter 2, if you don't remember the last few weeks. But in Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul quotes that passage in Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In other words, God intends for everyone uh, who's in marriage to be faithful, to love each other, to serve each other. But what Paul says in Ephesians 5 is in the context of Jesus and his church. So because you've put off the old self, because you've put on the new self, because you're dearly loved children, because you're filled with the Spirit, there is a power, he says. You are filled with the Spirit. There is power. There's a resource that's forever in your life. In other words, if you're not a believer, you can't live this way. It is impossible to live this way. You can try as hard as you want to be as consistent as you can, and you will fail. It is impossible to live this way. But if you are a Christian... You have an eternal resource in your life. You are filled with the Spirit. You are in Christ. You are new children. You are a new person. You are a new creation. You have a resource that's forever, God's Spirit in you. What are the requirements then? If I were to sum it all up, what are the requirements? One, Paul says, essentially, you've got to serve each other. Because that goes against the whole selfish agenda, marrying for status, marrying for just for your desires, for your fulfillment. Serve each other. Number two, he says, you're going to be different. You've got to embrace each other's differences. So let's take a look at these things. Uh, one, he says, serve each other. Verse 21, when Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what he's really saying is, serve the other person's needs. Serve each other's needs. Notice, he doesn't say, serve one another's desires. He doesn't say that. Because if you bow to every desire, you're going to lose yourself. You don't become you anymore. You don't have a you anymore. And that's going to lead to oppression. That's going to lead to abuse. God created male and female in his image. We read that earlier in Genesis, right? Which is what this text partly is founded on, right? That God created man and and woman in his image. God had attributed his qualities, his character, and he distributed between two opposite types of people. And so we have been created to live as image bearers of God. And you can do that all by yourself, and yet when you come together with the opposite, there is a completion there. You can reflect the image of God in a whole new way. So you actually become a whole new person on top of that. That's the priority. He says, your priority is to be image bearers of God and to lead each other to becoming better image bearers of God. So you're serving the needs of the other person to help them become a better image of God. In fact, when Eve was created to be Adam's helper, the word help, we said, is not like an assistant. It's not a sidekick. The word helper is a word that's primarily used to describe God in the Bible. 
This is an enabler, an empowerer, somebody who's going to take their strength and run their strength through their spouse so that they would be enabled to become a better image bearer of God. You got to serve that person. That's why Paul says, submit to one another. Now, of course, he says, wives in particular, that is what you're called to do, right, in a special way. But again, we're called to enable one another to be better image bearers of God. Now, that means that's going to guarantee for you that there's going to be conflict in your life. Because conflict reveals certain things. Conflict shapes certain things. When you confront one another, and you have to in any marriage, you have to confront one another for this reason. Because confrontation reveals or shapes whether or not you have a selfish heart or whether or not you have a servant heart. That's what it's going to do, and it's going to shape that. Think about this. If you never confront your spouse, what you're really saying is this. I value my comfort. I value my quiet. Because when you have children especially, you don't get a whole lot of quiet. So I value my comfort. I value my quiet. I value my peace as more important than the spouse's need to hear truth to become a better image bearer of God. Are you honoring God in your marriage then? You're not. Or if you're always fighting, you're always argumentative, you're always confronting the other person, that's probably because you value being right as more important than the spouse's need to receive gentleness and grace and patience to become a better image bearer of God. If you really want your spouse to grow, if you really want your spouse to heal, sometimes you need to be gentle. Other times, you need to be truthful. Most of the time, it's a mixture of the two, but no matter what, it requires you to engage your spouse. And when you win your spouse over to the truth by serving their need, not what they want, their needs, when you serve them, there's love, there's gentleness, there's care, and truth is going to be there. You're serving them. Secondly, in summary, Paul says, really, you have to embrace each other's differences, right? And if you have any questions about gender roles, you can really look back in the last several sermons because we go into that in quite a, quite a bit of detail. But it's a beautiful thing, really, right? What do we find here? Verses 22 to 30. You need to submit to the differences of one another. Now, we've been saying this historically for centuries, that men and women are different. But the Bible, really, the Bible has always acknowledged this, that men and women are equal in dignity. They are equal. Women are not lesser. That is faulty theology. That is faulty teaching, that women are lesser. Men and women are equal in dignity, and yet they're complete opposites. So when, you know, we look different, thank God, right? We look different, but there's also different gifts. And yet, when you come together, these two complete opposites, when they come together, wholly independent, wholly sufficient in, in their own way, on their own, when they come together, they realize they've been missing a piece of their lives all their lives. They complete each other. 
And so since Genesis chapter 2, which we've been looking at in detail, when Adam encountered Eve, when Adam first saw Eve, that is really the first poem in the entire Bible. That is the first song in the history of the world. Adam looks at Eve, and you know, you can imagine there's a sense of confusion because he's staring at his opposite, completely opposite in anatomy, completely opposite in just the way she looks, completely opposite in the way she is as a person. And Adam, who believed himself to be wholly sufficient in paradise, says what? I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying because it was a poem. He says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Really what he's saying is, you are so different from me, and yet knowing you, I realize more of who I am. You are completely the opposite of me, and yet coming together, I realize I've been missing something all my life. I'm now complete. Bone of my bone. Verse 31, Paul now in Ephesians chapter 5 is banking on that passage. And he says, this is why a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife. A man is not covenanted to his parents. If you treat it as if you are covenanted to your parents, right, that's going to devastate your life, actually. You are not covenanted to your friends in this way. It is not an institution. That's why sometimes friendships will change. That's why sometimes friendships kind of just kind of, depending on the stage in your life or a place in your life, it could change. But you are covenanted to your, to your wife. You are covenanted in marriage. The two will become one flesh in unity, in union. That word flesh, the word flesh actually means a whole new person, a whole new humanity in a sense. He says basically a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become together, two different opposites, come together, become a whole new person. That's what he says. And so that means marriage can't be about you now have to do everything I say. Right? That leads to oppression. That leads to abuse. Marriage can't be, I do everything you say. That becomes oppressive. That becomes abusive. There's confrontation. There's conflict at times. But you embrace one another's differences because, again, as we said in the first part, the goal and the priority is to make each other become better image bearers of God. That's what you were designed to do with the attributes that you've been given uniquely as male and female, as, as man and woman, as husband and wife. So you become one person. Now think about this, right? Because physically, when you have sex, you become one. Literally, the husband and the wife, they have two different functions, two different roles, right? It's part of your design, but Paul's really talking about more than just sex, and that's why it's wholly designed, again, to be just within the confines of marriage because there you have the covenant. That physical union shouldn't take place until first there's emotional union and psychological union and financial union and family union, lifestyle union. You get that? It's all part of the design. You have devastating effects in your life, devastating guilt, devastating purity issues if you go otherwise. But, and by the way, that happens across the board, even in secular society. That's not just in Christendom. We live in a more secular society today than ever before in the history of the world. 
There's a greater percentage of people in our generation today that do not know the concept of God or Jesus or ever have been inside a church. So I'm not talking about people who've been in the church and because of that, there are purity issues and they feel guilty because of things that they've given up in their relationships when they really felt like they shouldn't have because they were taught differently. We're talking about today, even in non-biblical secular society, there's rampant guilt. And that actually forces us sometimes to be in a relation longer, relationship longer than we should be, you see. That's what happens. When you have sex, the two become one. But Paul's talking about much more than that. He's talking about complementary souls. There's a biblical masculinity and a biblical femininity that come together and become a whole new person. Where the biblically masculine and the biblical feminine come together, they move towards each other, and they, move, they extend from themselves, move towards one another. And so what the husband does physically, right, in union, right, what the husband does physically in oneness, he must now do relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It's a tremendous responsibility. Even before there's any physical union, there's tremendous responsibility there. We compare this to a dance. Now think about it. I haven't been to a dance in like a long, long time, right? At least not the way you guys probably dance, right? Nowadays, if you can dance uh, side by side, you know, they do that in some parts of the country, I suppose, right? Both people can go right, both people can go left. Like a line dance, right? That means that two people can do the same thing and it's totally fine but you're not moving towards one another. A dance, when two people are now relationally moving towards each other, requires one person to go one way, then the other person to, to submit. There's a leader and a follower, but that's not weaker and stronger, right? What happens is they're moving in the same direction and yet completely opposite, almost facing each other. That's what a dance is. And if you're intimate in a dance, you move toward each other, you face each other. You can't both move right or else you're moving in two different directions. You can't both move left or else you're moving in two different directions. You see? You need to complement each other. It doesn't mean one partner's lesser. It doesn't mean one partner's weaker. But it means but when both spouses move together, move toward each other, it becomes very unique. Incredibly beautiful. There's harmony. You see that? Notice the text doesn't give you prescriptions. It doesn't give you how-tos in marriage. If you start bringing your own biases into a marriage, if you start bringing your own upbringing to the model, right, and you use the Bible then to justify the model, you're going to kill the real model. We said this before. It doesn't mean the wife doesn't get to question the husband. You should question your husband. It doesn't mean the wife always defers to the husband. That's irresponsible. When we said that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, that word head, we said, is the word authority. But think about this. What did Jesus do with his authority? What did Jesus do with his power? He never served himself. He never used his authority to fulfill just his own desires. What about my needs? He never did that. He served his people. He loved his people. He taught his people. So there's no prescriptives. There's no prescriptions in this passage per se, but it means you have to work together and embrace each other's differences with your spouse. 
So you got to serve each other, embrace each other's differences. In summary, now the last point is then, what does it represent? Verses 25 through 29, what does it represent? Paul points us to Jesus, and this is the key. This is the absolute key because you see it woven into the entire text. Jesus Christ is united to us. Jesus Christ is committed to us. He's committed to us covenantally. Jesus Christ cleanses us. Jesus Christ loves us. Jesus feeds us. Jesus cares for us as his bride. But why? Verse 25, Jesus gave himself up for the church. Verse 26, to make her holy. We talked about image bearing, right? Verse 27, to present the church as radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, but holy and blameless so that we would be better image bearers of God as we were designed. It's beautiful. In other words, Jesus Christ died for us, gave himself up for us, not because we're so beautiful, but to make us beautiful. He's drawn to us. He's drawn to us not just because we were weak, not just because we were helpless, but because there was a vision. We talked about vision. There's a vision. He's captivated by God's work in us, and that's the basis for his commitment and his covenant and his love. Now, single friends, by the way, this should change what you should be looking for in your spouse. Married friends, families here, right? This should change what you expect from your spouse. If you're just trying to have somebody who gets you to a certain place in your status, now I'll be accepted. Now I know I'll be known, I'll be seen. Or you're just trying to have somebody who's going to fulfill your desires for romance, right? That ideal that you have in romance. Now I'll be loved. Now I'm going to feel lovely. Singles, you know, when you're thinking about somebody, what are you looking at? Are you looking at how beautiful that person is on the outside? Are you thinking about how intelligent that person is? Because if it's intelligence, what you're saying is, I can milk this person because that person's probably going to ascend to some level of wealth or status or power. That's the traditional worldview we talked about. Or if you're looking at somebody and you're saying, oh, she's so pretty, she's so beautiful, or he's so handsome, you're looking at that person today and you're, look, you're conforming to today's view of marriage, that it's all about feelings, you see that? Or are you looking at their trajectory, their character, where they're headed, what God is doing in their lives that is so special? Are you attracted to what God is doing in them? That's number one. Number two, do they get you? Do they understand you in a certain way, in a sense, in, in a way that's better than you know yourself? Adam looks at his wife and he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That person completes me in a way that I never knew before. Does that person get you and understand you in a way better than you know yourself? One example or a, a test for this is, does that person question, is that person able to question your noble view of yourself? I oftentimes have a noble view of myself, you know, I sometimes make decisions and I'll say uh, to my wife and I'll justify to my wife that, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of distance myself a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, be more pastoral in a different way. I'm trying to look at things more organizationally and, and you know, what that person needs is, is gentleness and grace, right, not for me to confront them. And my wife will look to me and say, no, actually, I mean, she doesn't say it like this, but what she'll say is, you are a coward. That's why. You are afraid to confront that person. You are a coward. That person will bring humility into your life. That person will bring courage into your life. And we need that. We all need that. 
Three, does that person demonstrate confidence humbly in the way that they confront you? And fourthly, do they bear confidence and humility when they're confronted by you? These are great questions. But you have to look at what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel. Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ left home. Jesus Christ left his father to be united to his bride. Jesus Christ gave himself up. Jesus Christ gave up his status when traditional couples married for status. But Jesus Christ came down to be united to his bride when everyone else got married to move up. We talked about Jane Austen's style, right? To move up in status. Jesus Christ came down. And you want to know how far he came down? You want to know how low he came down? He was incarnated. He became a baby. You see, weak, helpless. He came low. So low, he died. So low, he was buried. When Jesus Christ gave gave himself up on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I lost power. Why? So he could run his power through you. I've been forsaken. I'm no longer acceptable. Why? To make us radiant. To make us holy and blameless. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person that ever walked the earth, gave up his beauty. He was marred. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when Jesus Christ on the cross, got everything, the penalty that we deserved, we could receive now everything that Jesus deserved. That's the gospel. Jesus' love. That's the Father's love for us, that he would send his son to die for us. And that's the real power in marriage because the more you look to Christ in your marriage and look away from that person's flaws, your spouse's flaws, or look away from your abilities compared to your spouse and you're critical and overcritical, almost oppressive of your spouse, The real power in marriage is so that you can give yourself up. Because if you know that Jesus Christ died for you, you're filled with the Spirit, right? That's chapter 5. Then you know that God is working in you. There's the vision. And you see your spouse, and you're captivated by what Christ was captivated, his vision for her or him. You see that? You're captivated by that vision for them to make them better image bearers of God. And that's why you move towards each other, like the dance. That's why you're able to delight in each other's future radiance, future vision, future glory. Look, if you look at God and you say, your personal relationship with God is, I need to try harder in order to get God's love. If that's the way you've been brought up, if that's the way you've been raised, you're just going to beat yourself up over and over and over. And it's because, and you'll never really know where you stand with God. You're never going to be able to love other people. You're never going to be able to move towards another person, especially your spouse in marriage, not in a genuine way. Life is always going to be about give and take, compromise, give and take, what you deserve, what the other spouse deserves, what the spouse deserves. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to ruin your marriage. You're never going to be able to speak into your spouse or you're going to be overcritical of your spouse, you see, and it's going to damage your marriage. But if you know that Jesus died to make you lovely, there's the vision for you and your spouse. There's the hope. It's a real hope. You're going to be able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You can love that person genuinely. Now, 
why do we do it out of reverence for Christ? Because the word reverence in the Greek is the word fear. Submit to one another out of fear of Christ. It's not a cowering fear. That's not what he's talking about. The actual word is a life-shaping awe because of the presence of God in your life. In other words, if you just believe in Jesus and you say, well, you know, Jesus served, so I look at Jesus as my example and I should serve, and I know I should, but I, I don't and I can't. It's true, you can't. Not if you look at Jesus that way. Look, if you see how horrible of a husband you are and you can be, or a future husband, if you see how horrible of a wife you are, and you can be, if you see that, if you see how helpless you are in that, even when you're at your best, if you see how selfish you are in that, even when you're at your best, then, and you're shaped by God's love, by the love of Christ, who died for you, and he's risen again, there's the power. Because he's risen, you know that everything he said is true. There's the vision for you and for his church to make you a better image bearer. That vision you see, and you see in your intimacy, we said marriage as friendship, right? We said that you see, you've captured a vision of what God is doing in this person. That's going to enable you to delight in that person. It's going to enable you to move towards that person. You can love them genuinely, right? Otherwise, you're really just going to submit out of reverence for your spouse. That's what you're going to do. And if you're looking for that, singles, if you're looking for that, that's, you know, loneliness will devastate you then. Disappointment will devastate you then, you see. Being single, for that matter, it will devastate you if that's what you're looking to. You've got to see marriage as a signpost. You've got to see marriage as representative. Otherwise, it's going to be an idol. It's going to be an idol. It's going to ruin your marriage. You're going to ruin your spouse. You need to see God's vision for your spouse and that you've been designed so that to enable them to become better image bearers, their future glory, you see. And if you look to Christ, if you're a Christian, if you look to Christ, your marriage represents that kind of love. Now, there are many of us here who are not sure if they're Christians, and you're really still trying to figure it out. What am I saying here? You need God but not just any God, not just any Savior. You need to see God as your lover, one who moves towards you, one who comes deeply into your life that you can experience intimately, that intimate love to the depths of your heart, all the way into the most ugly parts that you may not even know yourself, that surface at, at dif different times in your life. If you don't do that, you're going to make a God out of other lovers, many other lovers. And you're going to give up yourself physically and emotionally with a lot of regret. This God is a lover. This God moves towards you. This God makes you beautiful through Jesus. This is the kind of God you need. This God serves you. He's our spouse. He's our bridegroom. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church. Let's pray together.